A reading from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 5. Jesus raises a dead girl and heals a sick woman. When Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. Then one of the synagogue leaders, named Jairus, came, and when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet. He pleaded earnestly with him, my little daughter is dying. Please come put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. So Jesus went with him. A large crowd followed and pressed around him, and a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had, yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. Immediately, her bleeding stopped and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. At once, Jesus realized that power had gone out of him. He turned around in the crowd and asked, who touched my clothes? You see the people crowding against you, his disciple answers. And you, yet you ask, who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet and trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. He said to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. While Jesus was still speaking, some people came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. Your daughter is dead, they said. Why bother the teacher anymore? Overhearing what they said, Jesus told him, don't be afraid, just believe. He did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. When they came to the home of the synagogue leader, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. He went in and said to them, why all this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead, but asleep. But they laughed at him. After he put them all out, he took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him and went in where the child was. He took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha koum, which means little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately, the girl stood up and began to walk around. She was 12 years old. At this, they were completely astonished. He gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this and told them to give her something to eat. The word of the Lord. Good morning. Uh, my name is Paul Joslin, and I'm the student pastor here at Waterstone. Um, I'm excited to be with you guys this morning. Um, the question that Brad asked at the, the beginning during the greeting time was, where were you 12 years ago? Um, and it's a question that I'd like to follow up with now um, and ask again, where were you 12 years ago? Um, last night when I asked the Saturday night service this, there was a kid in the, the front who was about 12 years old, I guess, because he just yelled out, about to be born, <laughs> which that was great and also made me feel older than I think I should because I just had my 30th birthday. I was like, whoa, that's a very different time span. Um, but yeah, where, where were you guys 12 years ago? Does anybody mind shouting out um, where, what you remember about 12 years ago? 2005, anything come to mind? First baby, okay, very cool. Anything else? Here in the youth room, wow, all right. First great grandson. That's amazing. Awesome. Yeah, 12 years, um, when you stop and think about it, it's actually a, a pretty good chunk of time. In order for us to kind of remember a little bit more about what was going on 12 years ago, we have a few pictures for you guys uh, to jog our memory. So George W. Bush was entering his second 
term in office 12 years ago, which if you think about how much has changed since then, quite a bit. Um, also, YouTube was just founded that year, um, which I'm not sure if that was a good thing or a bad thing. Um, but also the iPod Nano um, was all the rage and a really big deal, which is a completely irrelevant and useless piece of equipment now with our phones. Uh, Lance Armstrong had just won his seventh Tour de France. A lot has changed for him in the last 12 years. Um, Pope John Paul II, that was the year actually that he passed away, changing the landscape of the church all around the world. Um, in addition to that, Hurricane Katrina um, struck and devastated New Orleans um, and the Gulf Coast. And Saddam Hussein was on trial for his war crimes in Iraq, for which he would eventually be executed. Twelve years is a long time. It is a good chunk of time, and in those 12 years, a lot of things can change. We have different highs and lows as the time passes, and the story today that we're looking at as we continue in the series of the book of Mark and, and looking at the life of Jesus, we come across two people who are united by a very similar thing in that one woman has been suffering for 12 years, and the father is about to lose his 12-year-old daughter. You can just think of the, the humanity of that, that moment, of the time of, of a father who's raised his baby girl into young adulthood. He's laughed with her, he's cried with her, he's probably disciplined her, and now he's at the moment where, where he thinks he's about to lose her. And when you think of the condition of the woman that she's been suffering for 12 years, 12 years, suffering since Bush's second term in office. You can imagine the toll that that would take on a person, 12 long years of suffering. And it's those moments of suffering and those moments where we're not quite sure how the story ends, where we come and we begin to ask ourselves some questions. God, where are you? Do you care? Can I trust you? In a season in my life, almost 12 years ago, I began to ask some of those similar questions. Um, because between my senior year of high school and my freshman year of college, my mom was diagnosed uh, with cancer. And it began this two-year journey of wondering, God, where are you in the midst of this? Do you care about my family? Do you care about my mother? And at the end of those two years, I, I received a call from my dad. I remember that it was, it was finals week of my sophomore year of college, and it was a Tuesday afternoon, and, and I got a call from him where he said, um, Paul, I, I need to tell you something um, that's really hard. And I, I said, okay, what, what's going on? And he said, well, the, the cancer has spread really aggressively um, in your mom's body, and, and the doctors are sending her home on hospice, and she's only going to have a few months to live. And I, and I actually remember in that moment not beginning to question God and wonder where he was or if he cared or if I could trust him. I actually remember my response in that moment being, okay, God, you've got this. You can still heal her. I still believe. 
The moment for me actually came two days later when um, I was all of a sudden woken up to the, the sound of tornado sirens that were going on outside of my, my dorm room. Um, and my roommate and I, we jump out of bed and we realize, oh my gosh, there's a, a storm taking place. And we rush down to the basement of our dorm and we're huddled down there with uh, about 250 guys who are still um, at the, the school. And in that moment, as the tornado sirens are, are going off and we can hear the storm raging outside, tearing apart um, parts of our campus, I receive another phone call from my dad. And it's 4.30 in the morning, so I know it's not going to be a good call. And he says, Paul, your mom has taken a turn for the worse, and the doctors aren't sure if she's going to make it through the night. I remember in that moment thinking, God, where are you? How am I supposed to get home to my mother when I'm sitting in the basement of a dorm trying to survive a tornado? Where in the world are you? Do you even care? And can I trust you? And, and I just remember in that moment hearing the storm raging outside and just feeling this, like, that is nothing compared to the storm that is going on inside of me right now. Where is God? Does he care, and can I trust him? And the reality is that, that those questions are not unique to me, and they're not unique to the, to the people in this story. I know that there are people in this room who are asking those same very questions this morning. You're in seasons of loneliness or depression or heartache or grief or loss, and you are wondering, is God there? Does he care, and can I trust him? And the beautiful thing about the story that we look at today in the book of Mark as we, as we look and examine Jesus is that he has a very clear answer to each one of those situations, each one of those questions. He meets us in the midst of them. But just because he has an answer does not mean that he saves us from the storms or from the circumstances of life that cause us to question his goodness or whether or not we can trust him. And so if you would, pray with me before we jump in um, to this story. <laughs> Heavenly Father, God, I ask that today, um, I, I do not know uh, the different places that everyone in the room is at. I don't know their stories. I don't know um, what different seasons uh, they are in. But God, you know each one of our circumstances. You know the loneliness that we may be feeling, the isolation, the hurt, the loss, the grief, the depression. You know our stories. And I pray today that as we look at this story from the book of Mark, that you would speak to everyone in this room, including myself. I pray that you would strengthen our faith. I pray that you would um, show us your care and your love and your power. And it's in Christ's name that we pray, amen. So as we jump back into the story of Mark, we need to remember um, where we just came from. So last week, uh, Larry talked on how Jesus had just crossed the Sea of Galilee, and as they're crossing the sea, the storm begins to rage, and Jesus wakes up, or his disciples wake him up, and he calms the storm. And then when they get across the sea, they go into this town, and there's a man there who's been possessed by many demons, and Jesus heals this man, and then they leave, and they begin to go back to Capernaum, the town that Jesus has been performing a lot of miracles in and teaching in for the last couple of months. Well, you may remember from the first chapter that Jesus goes to the synagogue, 
and heals a demon-possessed man. And later that night, people come to him from all over the town, and he heals them, and he teaches, and he preaches as one with authority. And people are awed and amazed at all that he's doing. And, and then as Jesus comes back to the town now, what we're told is that there's a crowd waiting for him in this moment because they're excited about the things that Jesus has been doing. They know that he's coming back, and he's going to perform more miracles. He's going to teach them new things, and they're excited about what might happen next. But there's a man in the crowd who has a, a particular interest in Jesus' return because what Matthew, or Mark tells us is that this man named Jairus is about to lose his 12-year-old daughter. And you can imagine in this moment as he's waiting for Jesus to come back, he, he's got to be asking the question, where are you, Jesus? Are, are you coming back? And, and he's got to feel this anxiety around his situation and his circumstances, hoping that Jesus won't come back too late. And then Jesus shows up, and he, and he rushes over to him. He falls at his feet, and he begins to beg and plead with Jesus to save his little girl's life. His little girl who's on death's doorstep. There's a couple of things that we need to know in order to appreciate this interaction that, that Jairus has with, with Jesus in this moment, because what we're told is that he's a synagogue leader. Which means a couple of things in, in those times. And one of them is that he was a lay leader of the church or the, the religious community in that town. And as a synagogue leader, he wasn't necessarily a priest, but he would be in charge of the upkeep of the local synagogue. He'd be in charge of the services and helping make sure they're planned and run smoothly. He'd be in charge of choosing the Torah readings. But the way that he probably got this position is that he was probably a person of, of pretty great wealth. Like, in the area, he was probably substantially wealthy. And in addition to that, he was, he was a power player. He was someone people looked to and would follow. He also, because of this position, had a certain level of prestige with the local community. People would respect him because of who he was. And not only that, but he was an insider. He was someone who the community would look to. They, they would see him, and he would be the center of the community. He would know the things that are happening, and he would be looked at as someone who's not on the outskirts of their society, but on the top of the social structure. And he was probably a devout follower of God. And so for all of these reasons, he was chosen to be a synagogue leader. But also what that means as a synagogue leader is that Jairus was probably well aware of the growing tensions between Jesus and the religious leaders from Jerusalem. Because the religious leaders, if you remember, they had come out, they've heard about this man Jesus and what he's doing and the miracles he's performing and the things he's teaching, and they're beginning to grow a little nervous and, and wanting to know, is this a person that we should follow or that we should be afraid of and condemn? And you can imagine, and as a synagogue leader, the Pharisees would come to him and say, hey, what happened in your synagogue? What, what was your interaction? What was going on with Jesus? And you see, for Jairus, up until this point, our best guess is that he's been able to maintain a certain level of neutrality as far as Jesus is concerned. He hasn't had to jump on board. He's not a part of the crowds following him. He's not one who's, who's wooed and awed by him. He's probably on the outskirts wondering, just like the other religious leaders, is this someone that we can trust? Is this someone that, that is okay to follow? Until the circumstances of his life force him from a position of neutrality to the feet of Jesus. And the thing that we have to recognize is that oftentimes in our own life, when, when we have some of those characteristics that Jairus has, when we have some of those the things that we need, the wealth, the prestige, the respect of others, when we're, we're trying to follow God, we can oftentimes fall into a place where we are neutral 
as far as Jesus is concerned. In our self-sufficiency, we can say things like, I really like Jesus, like I really like him, but I'm not sure if I'm quite ready to give him my whole life and surrender every aspect of it. And we can be comfortable in seasons of comfort when we're not experiencing hardship with saying things like, well, maybe when things go bad, I'll go to Jesus. But for right now, life's pretty good and I'm, I'm doing it all right on my own. The problem is neutrality is not a safe position when Jesus is involved. As I was thinking about that this week, um, I, I began to, to think of, of my car that I drive. So I drive a little 2008 Kia Rio 5, um, which basically just means it's a hatchback. Um, now this car is interesting because uh, it was a stripped down model when we bought it. So that basically means it doesn't have power locks or power windows, um, which means that anytime I see someone I know on the road and we like stop at a light together, I'm just like dreading them rolling down their window because I'm going to have to reach over and like crank it to get it to go down, which is just embarrassing um, in 2017. And uh, it also, it's a manual, um, so it's a stick shift, and as it's going, uh, it's kind of become a cranky car, I'd say, and so the clutch went out recently and we had to get it fixed. Um, got it back, and it was working fine, um, except for one little glitch that sometimes when you put the clutch in, it gets stuck in neutral, um, <laughs> which uh, I didn't really think uh, much of the first couple times it happened, because I would just be driving along, like, on my neighborhood street, it gets stuck in neutral, and I would just, like, kind of slowly coast off to the side, and then I would, like, yank at it for a while and be able to get it out and then go about my way. What I realized was that it was actually pretty dangerous it was when I turned onto Bowles one time, did a left turn, and as I turned, um, it got stuck, and then I saw a bunch of cars that were coming behind me, um, and I had to turn on my hazards, and I was like in the middle of the street, and I was worried that someone was going to just rear in me, um, and I realized really quickly that getting stuck in neutral is actually fairly dangerous uh, as far as cars are concerned. Who knew? Um, but I bring all of that up because sometimes in our lives, we can think we are playing it safe by staying neutral with Jesus. But when the circumstances of our life become too much for us to bear, and we're in neutral with Jesus, will we go to him and fall at his feet? Or will we be in a place where we're so neutral, we're so far away from him that we don't even know how to get back? You see, it's important that we recognize that for Jairus, he was self-sufficient. He had it all together. Until the moment when he was about to lose his daughter, and he had nowhere else to turn. And the question for us is, are, are we maintaining this position of neutrality? Are we at the feet of Jesus continually? Or do we only go to him when our circumstances and our life begins to fall apart? Jesus, being the loving person that he is, he, he goes with Jairus, and as they're heading back to the house and as they're making their way there, the crowd is, is building an excitement and anticipation of what Jesus might do next. They, they've probably heard this request because this man made a scene. He fell at Jesus' feet. They know he's a religious leader, and, and they want to see, oh man, is Jesus going to do what we think he's going to do? But as they're making their way there and the crowd is pressing in and, and hindering their progress, you can imagine that Jairus is getting pretty frustrated. I mean, you can imagine him thinking, I only have minutes before my daughter may die, and these people are in my way. Just move. Get out of the way. Let Jesus and me through. But we're also told that there's someone in the crowd who's not just there to see a show. There's someone in the crowd who actually is there because she needs Jesus, too. 
And we're told that there's this woman who's um, been bleeding for 12 years, which context from this gospel and others seems to indicate that that bleeding is some sort of hemorrhage related to her menstrual cycle. And that for 12 years, she has had a continuous flow of blood. And she has tried everything to be healed from it. She has made herself poor, trying to find a cure and trying to find healing. She is desperate, just as desperate as Jairus is for his 12-year-old daughter. And for 12 years, she has been suffering. And, and what's interesting about this woman is that we need to kind of understand some of the, the social context of what this meant. So in ancient Jewish culture, if a woman um, was on her menstrual cycle and in the time of her period, then she was actually forced to go into a time of separation from other people and from God. And, and she was relieved from all of her household duties, and, and she was able to, to, to not have to do any of that kind of thing. But she was also required to separate herself from other people and from worshiping God. Rachel Held Evans, who's a, 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 a current Christian author and writer, um, she actually did um, an experiment where for a year she lived according to all of the old Jewish laws, just because she thought it would be interesting to see what it was like. And she called her book um, The Year of Biblical Womanhood. And this is what she says about that particular time of separation when a woman um, is experiencing this. So, so she says this time of separation called Nita begins at the first sign of bloody discharge and continues until the evening of her seventh clean day for a minimum of 12 days. Additionally, Jewish women were to sleep on a separate tent and were not allowed to be touched by their husband or any male for that matter. No handshakes, no pats on the back, no comforting embraces. To do so meant that her uncleanness was transferred to him as well. And one of the things that Rachel talks about in her book is that um, actually the moments where she was able to separate and was relieved of all the household chores and duties and things that she would normally have to do, she said was actually a, a relief and that it was awesome to be able to just say, hey, um, it's that time of month, so kids, you order pizza tonight. Mommy doesn't have to cook. Um, she said she actually enjoyed that a lot, but what she wasn't expecting was that in those moments, if something went wrong, she was completely isolated from her community and from her friends. And she recounts one story where a friend, um, she receives a call that the friend died and passed away, and it was this time of separation, so she couldn't be comforted by her husband. And she had to cry alone by herself. And, and I only tell you that to, to realize the context of this woman. For 12 years, she has been in a constant state of isolation and separation. She's been in a constant state of being unable to enter the presence of God. She's been in a constant state of, of the idea that if she touches anyone in her community, they are unclean. Which means that we can, we can derive a couple things about this woman's condition, and, and one of them is that she was probably living in shame. Because people in her community would have assumed that her condition was some sort of result of sin in her life or some sort of curse. And so you can imagine the, the shame of 12 years of bearing that, of people looking at you, whispering and wondering, what caused this woman to suffer? And not only that, but she was living in physical weakness. You can imagine the physical toll that 12 years of this condition would take on a person. Not only that, but she's living in poverty. 
She has made herself poor trying to find healing. And Mark says that it's actually left her worse off than she was before. And not only that, but she's unable to have children, which again would have been a, a, a moment for the community to shame her because family lines and lineage was everything. And worse than all of that was the fact that she was living in constant isolation from others, in constant isolation from people and from God. And the question I, I can imagine her asking, I, last night as we were, um, as I finished preaching this, there was a woman who came up to me afterwards, and she uh, relayed to me that she had been suffering with a, a physical condition um, for over 20 years. Um, and as she shared with me, she said, Paul, the hard thing is that, that most days I, I genuinely believe. I believe in Jesus. I believe that he is good. But there are some days I wake up and I wonder, where is my faith? Where is my faith? And, and while it's speculative, you can imagine that this woman in the 12 years of her suffering has had many moments where she's wondered where her faith is. You can imagine that she's wondered where God is in the midst of her suffering. What's so remarkable about this woman is that in faith, in this moment, she steps out to find healing from Jesus, who th she thinks can save and heal her. And this is actually a, a pretty remarkable thing because in the context that we just set up, for her to be in a crowd of people that is around Jesus, anyone she bumps into will become unclean. And even the very fact of her reaching out to touch Jesus is against the law because she will be making Jesus unclean. But what the law says would make Jesus unclean by grace makes her clean. And as she reaches out to touch Jesus, she is healed instantly and immediately. And Jesus, recognizing this, I love Jesus because he, he just has this flair for the theatrical. You can imagine in a crowd as everybody's jostling and bumping into each other, and he just stops in this moment. He says, who touched me? And the disciples are, are like, what are you talking about, Jesus? Everyone is touching you. We're bumping, every, like, there's no personal bubble here, Jesus. What is your deal? Like, what are you, what are you talking about? And in that moment, Jesus stops the whole parade and says, no, I want to know who touched me. And this woman, she comes forward, and she too, like Jairus, falls at Jesus' feet. But she is filled with fear and trembling. Why is she afraid? Jesus has just healed her. Because she knows that what she did broke the law. And she knows that the community around her would be angry if she had made them unclean for being in that crowd. And she knows that if Jesus is anything like the other religious leaders, that he will condemn her for what she has done. And yet Jesus responds with grace and love. And it's actually a, a beautiful story because it's one of the most tender moments we have of all of Jesus' ministry. It's the only time in any of the Gospels that he looks at a person and calls them daughter. And he says, daughter, your faith has healed you. And the word for healing there is, is actually the same word we use for salvation. It's this salvific, holistic healing, physically and spiritually and emotionally, he is healing her. And he also says that you can go in peace, shalom, completeness, wholeness, be freed from your suffering. 
It's one of the most intimate portrayals we have of Jesus, and I think it clearly answers the question, does Jesus care about our suffering? Yes. He takes the time to know our pain and our suffering and our heart, and he calls to this woman and brings her forward and establishes relationship with her that restores her to her community, that restores her to the community that had isolated her for the last 12 years, restores her to the family of God by calling her daughter. And you can imagine that in that moment, 12 years of pain and suffering and heartache, were redeemed by the beautiful words of Jesus. And you can imagine that this example of faith sustained Jairus in the next moments, because as this interaction is happening, Jairus' friends run up to him, and and they, they come hurriedly, and they say, Jairus, I'm sorry, but your daughter is gone. She didn't make it. And I want to pause here just for a moment, because if you've ever received a phone call or had someone approach you to let you know that someone you care about is no longer living, You know the shock that Jairus experiences in this moment. You know the pain. You know that his world is shattered and broken, and he has no hope left. And I also think we need to note what Jesus says to him. Because Jesus' response, if I'm being honest, I can't condemn Jesus, I can't say anything, it is a terrible response, if we're just being honest. He says, don't be afraid, just believe. Which in all of my seminary classes, anytime we ever talked about grief counseling or any counseling classes or any Stephen ministers that we train, we would never tell them if someone's going through a, a hard moment, a moment of grief and sadness, to tell them, just believe everything will be fine. No one does that. Because we know in those moments, people need not to be told just what they're supposed to do, but to, to be loved and to be comforted. But what strikes me is there's something about the way Jesus says it. Or maybe the way he looks at Jairus when he says it. That he gets away with it. And he says, don't be afraid, just believe. And and we also have to pause and and think for a moment about Jairus' response in this moment. Because if it were me, and I had just lost someone I loved that I was hoping Jesus could heal and save, but he paused and healed another person who'd been suffering for 12 years when when my daughter was on death's doorstep, I would probably be pretty angry. I mean, that seems a little bit like malpractice, Jesus, if I'm being honest. What are you doing? Now you are telling me to trust you. How can I trust you? The daughter that I've entrusted to you is now dead. Or he can choose to do what Jesus says and trust him. And I wonder if it's because of the woman's faith that she just displayed in Jesus' interaction with her that gives him the courage to trust Jesus in this moment. Because he goes with Jesus and they go back to the house. And you can imagine the pain of that walk. And and I've, I've often wondered, what would that interaction be like with Jesus in that moment? Are they walking in silence together? Is Jesus talking to him? Does Jesus have his arm around him? What is that interaction? We can imagine as they're slowly getting closer to the house and the crowd is still following them, they begin to hear the wails and the cries of the mourners who have come to cry for the loss of his daughter. I mean, how painful would those steps be of walking into the place of mourning of your little girl who's gone? And to make matters worse, when they get there, Jesus says another statement that seems so crazy and so out of place. He says, why are you crying? She's just asleep. 
And we're told by Mark that, that the mourners laugh at Jesus. But they're also laughing at Jairus' little daughter who is dead because they know she's dead and not asleep. You see, everything in Jairus' circumstances in this moment are screaming at him not to trust Jesus. Everything in his circumstances are telling him Jesus is going to fail you. He didn't do what he was supposed to do. You are in the lowest place you have ever been. Don't trust him. And the question for us is when our circumstances are screaming at us not to trust and believe Jesus, can we still trust in him? Can we still know that he is good? Can we trust him when an engagement we've been hoping for and then the future that we've been expecting has been broken off? Can we trust him when we lose the jobs that provided for our family? Can we trust him with the shame we feel at no longer being able to do so? Can we trust him with the pain of, of childlessness and hoping for children but, but not being able to conceive? Can we trust Jesus with our children who are grown and turn away from the faith? Can we trust Jesus in the moments when doctors use scary words like cancer or MS or Parkinson's? Can we trust Jesus when those we love have been taken from us before we think it was their time? Can we trust Jesus when our circumstances scream at us not to? The answer from this text and from the ministry of Jesus in this moment is that yes, we can trust him. Because in this moment, he takes Jairus and his wife and his three closest disciples, and he walks into the house, and he goes to the little girl who's laying on the bed, lifeless and still and cold. And he walks up to her, and he takes her by the hand, and he says, Talitha kum, which is this beautiful phrase, and the, the best interpretation I've heard of it is that it's literally Jesus saying to this little girl, Honey, wake up. Honey, wake up. The little girl who is dead raises up, just as if she had been sleeping, like Jesus said. And you can imagine her wiping her eyes and, and, and getting up and walking around, and Jesus asks her if she's hungry, just like it's a normal day for a girl to wake up. And they offer her food, and Jesus tells these people in this room to tell no one about what has just happened. But we know that that's a ridiculous request, because the entire crowd had just come knowing this girl had died, and there were mourners outside knowing this girl had died. And the next day when they see her get up and walk around town, they're going to have questions about what just happened. And the truth is that the power of the resurrection just took place in these people's lives. And that Jesus showed up in immense power and raised this little dead girl to life. And what's hard for us sometimes is we come to these stories, and, and I come to these stories, and I often think these two words. Yeah, yeah. But, yeah, it's great that Jesus showed up for this woman that he healed her. Yeah, but it's great that he showed up for this little girl and, and raised her to life. But that's not my story. That's not my experience. Jesus hasn't healed. Jesus didn't raise. And I understand that because that isn't my story. The night that, that my dad called um, 
it, it was a crazy turn of events. I, I remember sitting in that moment and just I'm wondering where God is and if he, he loved me and cared about me in that moment as the storm was outside. And, and about 15 minutes after that, uh, my dad called. Um, I just broke down into tears with all of my friends. And they began praying for me. And they prayed that I would be able to make it home. And I honestly, to this day, I don't know how it happened, but that storm lifted. And, and my girlfriend at the time, who's now my wife, we, we were able to drove home. And I mean, we were driving through trees that had fallen all over our campus, through glass and debris. And we made the five-hour trip home um, to see my mom. And she only lived for a few hours after that. But as she was on death's doorstep, I remember very clearly, very clearly, my dad was reading stories from the Gospels of Jesus raising people from the dead. This passage of this little girl, the passage of Lazarus, where Jesus says, come out of your grave. See, what sustains us in those moments, those storms of life, when all of our circumstances are screaming at us to give up and abandon the faith, and to stop trusting Jesus because he is not worth it and he is not worthy of our trust, the thing that sustains us in those moments is the power of the resurrection. It is the power of Jesus who is able to say to a little girl, Talitha kum, awake up. It is the power of Jesus who is able to walk out of his own grave and say, death, you have no dominion here. I am king and ruler now. That is the hope that we have in those seasons, in those moments when we want to abandon and question and wonder where God is. The other beautiful thing about this story is that I can imagine this woman who's been healed and, and the way that she was struggling. I imagine there were moments in those 12 years of suffering where she questioned God, and God does not hold that against her. He still meets her. We need to recognize we live in this balance of, of questioning and doubt and wrestling with where God is and is he good and does he love us and does he care? Can we trust him? While at the same time recognizing that the reason we can answer those questions, yes, is because of the power of the grave. And that one day, for all of those who believe in Jesus and call on his beautiful name, that he will say to us, Talitha Kum, and he will tell us to wake up and spend eternity with him in his goodness and grace where there will be no more sadness, no more death, no more devastation, no more darkness, and no more sorrow. Can we hang on to that hope for a little longer? Can we hang on to Jesus? The answer is yes, because death could not hold on to him. It's interesting is this is actually the message that the, the truth of the resurrection is the thing that has sustained Christians for generations, for centuries. In fact, one of the earliest recorded sermons we have ends with a liturgy praising Jesus, who is the, the power over death, the power of his resurrection for our salvation and healing. And, and I wonder if you would be willing to, to stand with me today and declare that liturgy together. It's called Christus Victor, the victory of Christ over death. It is our hope, it is the answer to can we trust that he is good. Would you please stand and read with me? 
But Jesus rose from the dead and mounted up to the heights of heaven. And when Jesus had clothed himself with humanity and had suffered for the sake of the sufferer and had been bound for the sake of the imprisoned and had been judged for the sake of the condemned and buried for the sake of the one who was buried, he rose up from the dead and cried with a loud voice, Who is he that contends with me? Let him stand in opposition to me. I set the condemned man free. I give the dead man life. I raised up the one who had been entombed. Who is my opponent? I, he says, am the Christ. I am the one who destroyed death and triumphed over the enemy and trampled Hades underfoot and bound the strong one and carried off man to the heights of heaven. I, he says, am the Christ. He is the Christ. As we go into a time of response now, um, I'm going to invite the Stephen ministers forward. And if you are in a season of life where you need prayer or encouragement, I would encourage you to come forward um, during this time of worship and receive that. Allow someone to pray for you and for your faith. May we remember that Christ is victorious over the grave. And that is our hope.